This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. All right, we were all surprised uh, when we found out that the U.S. had laid charges and arrested uh, an Ancaster man, three others indicted in uh, the hack of Yahoo, which exposed 500 million uh, users' accounts. Uh, from where what we understand, uh, this man is still in uh, Canadian custody at this point, waiting to be, uh, I guess, waiting for extradition and whatever goes all, all involved in that. Let's bring in David Hyde, security co- consultant, David Hyde and Associates. He is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time. Your thoughts when you heard this? Well, I mean, certainly, Scott, it's a major international case garnering attention everywhere. I doubt that the Meadowlands community there in Ancaster has seen any anything like this in terms of the media interest on, on one of their streets there. Um, but, you know, uh, we know that the Yahoo hack occurred. There's been other major hacks that have occurred, too. The Russians have been implicated with the U.S. election uh, hacking activity uh, last year as well. So it was only a matter of time before I think the authorities uh, started to try to lay down some evidence and some, some indictments here and actually name people and, and, and start to take some of these through to um, through the court system. So I'm not overly surprised, Scott, but of course, surprised that somebody uh, in the Hamilton area would be implicated and would seem to have been involved, uh, so the allegations go, in this very serious uh, international case. Surprised at the age of this young man? <clears throat> well, yes and no. I mean, the reality is, Scott, that, you know, people of that age now, as we yeah. know from you know, just in general, are so much more savvy, obviously, so much more ahead of the game on, on, compu- on the computer side. And they're also not going to be as, you know, as concerned about getting caught or convicted. When you're a little bit older, you perhaps had a few brushes with the law, maybe you're inclined to do a few kind of gray things, and you may have had a few scares in the past, you might not be so willing to take those kind of risks. But when you're young like this guy was, apparently a, a computer whiz, someone who, you know, like kind of a fast life, fast cars, um, you know, again, we're looking at the allegations here. So none of these are proven. But if the allegations are true, you know, he obviously was, was either lured or, or brought into this kind of cybercrime world and found easy money, fast money with little risk, so he thought. So, no, I'm not surprised at that, 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 that age that somebody would uh, be willing to take those kind of risks. What do we know about Karim Baratov? What do we know about where he came from? How does he get involved in this sort of stuff? Well, the, the background story that's been reported so far, Scott, is that this was a, a young man who had, uh, I think, had dropped, either dropped out or left high, uh, been, been kicked out of high school a little bit uh, uh, prematurely. He was someone that was known with, amongst all his friends uh, as, as, a, as a computer whiz, a little bit awkward, a little bit of a geek, but also someone that had a penchant for kind of flashing money around. Even in high school, before he left high school and then into his teens and early 20s, there's pictures of him. He is a very big online media presence, Scott, multiple platforms with fast cars, Lamborghinis, Aston Martin, BMWs, Mercedes, you name it. You know, um, going to the gym and posting online photographs himself and using kind of supplementation to, to pump up his muscles and stuff. And just someone that seems to have been maybe fairly introverted through his earlier life, but was sure making up for it through this kind of um, really this kind of netherworld of being a computer whiz, putting himself forward as an entrepreneurial kind of guy. But all the people around him uh, wondered, you know, how could this kid be doing this well? How could he have these $100 bills? How could he be able to ultimately get into a nice home um, at, at such a young age? So there was lots of questions swirling around. 
So when this, these allegations, Scott, were put forward, it did click into place for some people who thought, well, you know, maybe this explains it, the fact that he maybe was able to have made some fast money illegally through cyber uh, crime that, that maybe was um, his pathway into, into these fast cars and kind of fast life, if you will. So how would he get involved with something so serious as this? H- how does that happen? Well, you know... And I mean, obviously online... it's speculation at this point. Yeah, of how... course. And, and again, we are going on allegations, Scott. His mm-hmm. lawyers are, are, are protesting this man's innocence. And obviously we will see uh, in the coming days and weeks. But the indictment was quite thorough, was quite full of information. And so it, it appears that, you know, when you look at the online activity here, Scott, um, you know, geographical borders kind of fade away. So if you, if you become a, some type of a hacking specialist, and of course there are multiple ways. There's, you know, there's phishing, there's actual, you know, social engineering. There's a multitude of ways that one can be a cyber criminal or can try to gain access to computer networks and, and, and sensitive information. So this individual, so the allegations go, was quite well known as a, as a hacker, was, had some pretty unique skill sets. So the way the allegations go is that at some point this guy came to the attention of the Russian officials and, and Russian cyber security and cybercrime experts. And there's even a suggestion that he may have been approached by the Russian um, officials, or the kind of uh, FSB um, intelligence type uh, individuals who, who, who may have said to him, look, we've, we know what you're doing. We know you're online doing these things. And if you don't work with us, um, we're going to turn this over to the authorities. You're going to be in a heap of trouble. Hmm. So this is not proven, Scott, but the, there are allegations out there to suggest that he may have been co-opted into this or blackmailed in some way. But again, the allegations go that he was quite a um, uh, you know, a, an established uh, cyber criminal, and he had been doing things to make money, um, you know, by uh, cyber crime mm-hmm. through uh, the internet, um, and he'd had a, a degree of success. Whether that means compromising certain types of corporate or, or business networks, being able to access um, email accounts and usernames, being able to access credit card information. These are the kind of things to be able to monetize that activity that criminal hackers need to get good at. What's his relationship to Russia? Obviously from Kazakhstan initially. Uh, how long has he been here? I heard 19, uh, at 19 years of age. Uh, what is the relationship there? Well, I mean, the relationship, frankly, appears to be little more than online. I mean, of, of course, Scott, we don't know. Yeah. All the information hasn't come forward yet. Did he ever travel to Russia? I doubt it. Who knows? I mean, I, you know, we don't have the, the evidence. But it seems to me as though there is a very much of a kind of a dark web or an underworld kind of collective, if you will, of cyber criminals. And, you know, where... That they can possibly be linked to certain countries or certain cultures. Um, there, you know, there. For example, there might be like that. You've heard of North Korean groups, Chinese groups, Russian groups, North American groups. So it would appear to me that maybe this guy <coughs> would had become known to to the Russians. Um, that indicted here, Scott, of four people: two Russian intelligence operatives who are who are the handlers in the allegation. One very well-known Russian hacker that is actually on the FBI's most wanted list or has been for a long time, 
who who has a Russian passport and um, was as accused of, of hacking into many e-commerce sites in the U.S. back as long as 2010, 2011, and uh, is currently um, uh, was facing extradition to the U.S. and then uh, from Europe and managed to escape uh, back to Russia. So right now he's at large, and it could well be that his network of criminal hackers um, either became known to the Canadian um, Kareem Baratov here from from uh, uh, from Hamilton, from Ancaster, or they may have just kind of crossed paths and been doing some of the same things, and may have then kind of gone into cahoots via online forums. Uh, described by the U.S. as a citizen of Canadian and and Kazakhstan. So, do we know where he was born? <clears throat> I'm not sure, Scott. I have not looked back into that uh, as of yet. I've seen I mean, nothing it would on seem, it yet. It, it would seem to make sense that he perhaps was born in Kazakhstan and, and came over as a, in his youth uh, mm-hmm. to Canada, quite possibly, but I don't know. I have not looked into that background. Now, what, how would Russia feel about this? Where are they on all of this? Well, look, the very interesting thing with this, Scott, is the connection to this uh, Russian hacker um, who, whose name is Belan. His last name is Belan. And again, he's this guy that's been named by the FBI most wanted list. Right. This is the same guy that was named as one of the people by the Obama administration as, as, as involved in the political hacks in 2016 of the DNC um, and, and other types of targets to undermine the U.S. election. So there is a connection at this time from the allegations in the Yahoo case that have now been brought forward and the potential that there's some involvement in the, in the U.S. election. So this is the first time now that we've really seen laid bare, if one is to believe some or all of the allegations, of how these Russian hacks seem to work, <clears throat> co-opting cyber criminals to extend the reach of the cyber intelligence gathering experts that the Russians appear to have in their intelligence agencies, the FSB being the primary one. So if this is a bit of a tease of what we might be seeing in investigations to do with the political hacks that the Russians are uh, accused of being involved in, Scott, it could kind of be a page out of that playbook here. So the Russians are going to be very much denying. They're going to be obviously denying that their agents were involved. They're going to say this is a U.S. front. This is, you know, Yahoo. Um, we're under a very major buyout, Scott, at the time that these hacks were announced. As you may know, a multi-billion dollar buyout by, a, by another company. So the, the Yahoo was saying, look, this was a state-sponsored hack. We were really powerless. So this was not, a, you know, some whiz kid in his basement. This is not bad security on our part. This was a government state-sponsored. Well, this narrative that comes out now with this indictment of course, supports that. So you can, you can I guarantee you what will happen. The Russians are going to jump on that and say, look, this is big business, big government in the U.S. trying to cover up their own inadequacies or their own problems and claiming that Russia is the big bad evil player that was involved. We know nothing about this. And if it was Russians, it was criminals beyond our purview. What will the U.S., how, how will they handle this and the Canadian connection? How will they play that? Well, I mean, no question that the Canadians are going to cooperate a thousand percent with all of the U.S. investigation. This, of course, did not come from, from Canadian law enforcement. This, this came from the Department of Justice in the U.S., the FBI reaching out through, most likely, Scott, the RCMP. That's the national connection. It appears that the Toronto uh, police were involved. They have special teams that work 
on these kind of cases and fugitive acquisition cases like this. They probably would be the Canadian Police Department, certainly in Ontario, the most well positioned to uh, you know, make this kind of, uh, of an apprehension. So it appears that it was them. Uh, undoubtedly, they would, have, um, they would have let Hamilton police at a very senior level know what they were about to do. But they swooped in and arrested this individual and have now locked down his home and evidently are gathering evidence from his online um, platforms, etc. Will the U.S. look at Canada as this is how this came in? Because the other people we don't have, the other people are presumably still over there. Uh, One connection locally uh, here in Ancaster, would they somehow say it's our lack of security that's allowing this person to spy on them from our territory? Well, we don't know enough, Scott, yet to know whether there could be that kind of a narrative flow out from this. But I, on, on what we know so far, I very much doubt it. I mean, I really don't know the difference between this guy being in an Ancaster, a home in Ancaster versus being in a home in Ohio or in New York or somewhere else. I, I don't think that additional security, online security measures or intelligence gathering that may have flagged this guy up to authorities would really be that much different. So unless this individual was someone that was known to uh, authorities as someone that was involved in, as a major cyber criminal. I mean, it's possible that the US, that the Canadian authorities knew about this guy or, or knew a little bit about some of his activity online or were investigating things that he had been involved in. But I would think that it's unlikely that he, I mean, apparently he has no criminal record, Scott, from the information we have right now. So do you think he would be on the RCMP's radar? I w- again, it's really hard to tell. It's yeah. pure conjecture at this point, but I kind of doubt it. I think that this was, I mean, he may, may well have been someone that had been, been someone, you know, often on envious kind of terms, who sees a kid with lots of money and flashy stuff, may have spoken to police or authorities, and, hey, this kid, you know, he's out there, he's got these cars and money, and, you know, I mean, he may have been brought forward to local law enforcement, and there may be a little bit on file. The police do keep information about potential investigation, potential crime, but whether there's a criminal file, whether he actually was aligned with um, criminal activities and there was investigations ongoing, we don't know that, Scott, and, and that will likely come out. But I kind of doubt it. I mean, it seems to me as though this is more of a case where this guy was really undercover and had really found ways to, to get involved in things in a very low-key way. We, all, we know, Scott, that unfortunately the, the law enforcement's ability to police online activity, given its border issues and just the sophistication that some of the hackers have, it really is lagging behind, and it's very difficult to make, um, you know, to identify individuals and, and, and lay charges and these kind of offenses. Uh, last question: We don't have much time left. Is it easier for someone to hack the United States from Canada than it would be from Russia? I, I would think that there may be, Scott, uh, a, a little bit. I mean, obviously, um, there's monitoring activities that would be monitoring, um, you know, uh, things that would emanate from Russia. But, of course, using certain platforms and mediums, you can disguise activity and, in a way, cloak yourself, if you will, to look as though you're from somewhere else. So I'm, I would defer to computer experts in that question, Scott, but I doubt it. I don't think there's a lot of difference. My view here is that the Russia, if this is true, is that the Russian... Uh, um, authorities here, these the, the, the FSB people that wanted to partner with cyber criminals, they were looking for the best people 
out there. They found one in Russia, and they may have found one in Canada who could do something very unique, and they may have blackmailed this kid to get involved in what they were doing, uh, or that he may have been lured into, into the trappings of making a lot more money by doing this. David Hyde has been with us, security consultant David Hyde and Associates. David, thank you for the time and insight on all this. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A lot of people trying to find out as much information uh, as we possibly can about 22-year-old uh, Kareem Baratov. He is the, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the Ancaster man that has been uh, arrested and uh, allegations of, uh, I guess, four people, one of four. He is one of four, uh, two other Russian spies, uh, one of four who uh, are implicated, uh, grand jury, California, uh, implicated in the theft of, and hacking of information from Yahoo uh, that happened a while back. Uh, 22 years old, driving around in all kinds of uh, vehicles and so on and so forth and living in the big house and... You have to think, you know, I mean, some in the neighborhood, I guess it raised some red flags. Uh, Some others, it didn't raise red flags. Uh, We have a couple of clips here. This is from the Bill Kelly show. Uh, Victoria Cyril, who was uh, who is a friend of uh, the man that has been arrested and was on with Bill Kelly earlier on this morning and uh, talked about a couple of things, uh, including the job and whether she was ever uh, curious of where all the money came from. Which, to me, I thought, well, you know what, that's great. Obviously, you're very smart. He is very smart. He's done something with computers, with the Internet. I mean, he's my friend. I would never question, okay, how do you make your money? And, of course, uh, rumors floating around about the parties and and cars that were always parked out uh, front. And I guess she had attended one of these parties. Yes, it was very, like, lavish. You had your Rolls Royces, your Lamborghinis, your Ferraris, all that stuff during the day. And it wasn't, like pumping music, blasting, all that kind of stuff. He kept it pretty under control. Everybody was very respectful. So there you have it. Uh, And I'm sure as time goes by, we'll slowly uh, hear more of this man and uh, what exactly his connections were to the neighborhood and, of course, these allegations that are now before him, uh, which, to say the least, would be life-changing. Let's bring in Stephanie McClellan. She is a research associate at the Center of Governance Innovation and a former editor and reporter for various news outlets, including the Hamilton Spectator. And Stephanie is with us now. Hello, Stephanie. How are you today? Hi, Scott. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well. What, what, what did you think about when you first heard of this scenario and of this case uh, and something uh, so large and so international involving someone out of Ancaster, Ontario? Right. Well, I mean, it's uh, a couple of things came to mind. I mean, the first is that we've been hearing for years and it's been widely assumed that the Russian intelligence agencies have been working with sort of freelance or paid uh, more criminal type of cyber criminals and and hackers to to do some of their work, um, so, but this is the first time that we've really seen it spelled out in such detail and seen um, you know an American justice agency uh, that goes into so much detail and to actually specify that this is what they've been doing. Is it easier to hack the U.S. from Canada than it is from Russia? I mean, I'm not a a technological guy in this sort of thing. I'm not sure if you are either. But is that obviously the attraction here? 
Not at all. I mean, you can you can do this stuff from anywhere. Um, all you really need is a computer and a little bit of know-how on how to work your way around. Um, you can use proxy servers to make it look like you're coming in from a different location. So yeah. um, geographical location really doesn't have as much to do with it. Uh, what these guys do have, which is attractive to um, groups like the uh, the FSB, the Russian Security Agency, that's been uh, that's been pointed at here. Um, what they do have is they have uh, they have the skills, they have the, the technical skills and the capacity, and it also gives them a degree of separation. So they're able to say, you know, we're not, uh, we might not be doing this ourselves. There's just some guy in Ancaster with a computer who said he was working for us. Right. So these are almost freelancers. In a sense, yes. Um, even uh, one of the uh, one of the um, the suspects who's been named as as working for the FSB, he started off as a hacker, and it was like something out of a spy movie where the the FSB said, "Well, you know, you're obviously really good at this, so you can come work for us." Um, and I think what's uh, what's been underlooked with a or yeah, I'm not uh, really taken into account with a lot of the talk around Russia these days and Russia as a threat is that uh, Russia doesn't have a ton of money right now. So if uh, they don't have the system where they can sort of build up their own people who can do this, so if they're able to, um, if they're able to recruit somebody who can do the work for them, that's a good strategy for them. Uh, have you ever heard of them blackmailing people into doing this sort of activity? We had one guest that suggested that a little earlier. It's possible, but I mean, I don't know if they're paying people good money to do this. I don't know why, mm-hmm. you know, why there would any be be much point to blackmail. Um, again, this has been uh, this has been considered for years. It's it's not unheard of uh, for people who don't work for an agency directly to take on some of these tasks. So um, I haven't heard blackmail being suggested seriously. You were mentioning this is the first time we've sort of had it laid out for us and or spelled out exactly how this sort of thing may work. If you know eventually these allegations prove to be true, how big is this case? How instrumental is this? Will this change things? I don't know if it will change things, but what it does is it um, continues a pattern and a precedent that you can tell that the United States is trying very hard to set. Um, even going back a couple of years, uh, they charged a number of people who were alleged to be working for the Chinese government um, in more of a, an economic espionage where they were trying to steal corporate secrets. Um, so you do have, but there aren't too many of these these cases, um, and the international community is still trying to feel its way out in terms of how do you respond to to cyber attacks. Um, you know, there's been a very 50 years plus of how do you respond to attacks in the, that happen in the real world. So um, the internet and the cybersecurity landscape is um, a newer domain. So what we're seeing with this is we're seeing the United States kind of build upon what it did with the Chinese hackers a few years ago and with the DNC hacks uh, just back late last year, uh, where they're saying, if we know that there's a state involved in this, we're going to call them out on it, we're going to press charges, uh, and even if Russia doesn't respond to this, at least we're doing things to show that we are taking this seriously, we are going to name names, and we are going to help establish the new standard that if we catch a state that's uh, hacking on our um, on our companies and our democracy and our institutions. We're going to call it out. Uh, is this directly related to the DNC hacks? Do you think, or just the fact that this is going on at all? 
There's no evidence at this point that it is. Um, and there's also another massive Yahoo hack that happened the year before in 2013. Um, and so far, there is no evidence that these are related. But uh, the common thread is that it does uh, involve Russia and it does involve Russian intelligence agencies. So is Russia actively looking for people not only here but all over the world to carry out this sort of espionage? It's hard to say whether it's uh, you know actively looking or if it's more of a matter of convenience, if it's people that they know. Right. Um, the other non-FSB uh, suspect who was uh, named in the indictment is somebody who has a reputation of being a very well-known uh, Russian hacker. So um, at this point, I don't see any evidence of how they are um, how they are getting people, whether this is you know people signing up or people they are recruiting. So um, it's hard to say at this point, but you know definitely geography isn't a factor. Obviously, four involved here, only one uh, accounted for. That's because he was in Ancaster. Uh, the other three, what are the chances of getting them? I'll say, I'll assume nil. So what sort of, uh, how are the U.S. going to view this and the Canada connection? Or like you said, is, is, is geography irrelevant here? Well, I think... Um the diff- I think you're absolutely right in that they're not going to get uh, the other three suspects out of Russia. You know, there is no extradition agreement between Russia and the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like I said, that is uh, I think it's more symbolic and more saying that we are going to you know we are going to name names. Um, we haven't seen any uh, discussion of sanctions yet against Russia like we did after the DNC hacks, um, and certainly with this president, it'll be interesting to see if that goes ahead. Um, but as far as Canada is concerned, um, at this point, I haven't heard any official comment from the Canadian government whether if, whether they will be uh, pursuing an extradition. So I see no reason that they wouldn't do it um, because Canada has been uh, sort of on board with the U.S. model in this and with a lot of the, the liberal democracies who do want to make sure that there is uh, accountability in cyberspace the same way that there is in um, you know, in, in the regular world, where if there is uh, something like this taking place, uh, there will be standards, there will be norms, and people will be held accountable. Uh, Baratov, the man at Ancaster, is he just collateral damage in this, a small part of a bigger wheel? I think so. Um, it doesn't seem to be that he was masterminding any of this on his own. Um, if he was doing other, uh, if he was doing other hacking and other criminal enterprise. Um, I'm sure that's something that police would have to investigate and have to find out. But as, as far as this case is, is concerned, um, it, it seems like what happened here is that the intelligence agency decided to work with these hackers and kind of said, well, you know, while you're in there, while you have access, you can do whatever you want with the system, which is how you saw um, some of the uh, the more cybercrime elements that were happening or the, you know, the, the phishing and the uh, skimming of credit cards and things like that. Uh, wh- where is Russia on all of this? What will they say? Uh, how, how does this affect relations between Russia, the United States, Russia, and Canada? Well, at this point so far, they've denied everything, which is not really a surprise. Um, and it's at this point, it's hard to see how relations with the United States could get worse. Um, we've seen, again, with with the DNC hacks, um, We've seen that they don't. You know, they have no interest in uh, in playing ball. They have no interest in um, respecting other countries. Uh, you know, their own institutions or their own companies. Um, they think that they can do whatever they want in terms of the internet and hacking and uh, you know cyber attacks. Um, 
So again, with with the president we have now, um, it's interesting because we don't know. He's been very inconsistent on Russia, so it'll be a matter of whether um, the Department of Justice and Department of Homeland Security, who have been more aggressive, uh, whether they'll be able to hold more sway here. And in terms of Canada, again, uh, Canada has been on the same page with sort of the United States and the European Union and the rest of the world in terms of trying to maintain uh, some kind of order in the uh, in the cybersphere and trying to make sure that uh, setting norms really against uh, other countries attacking different states and their institutions. So, um, and we've seen that there have, especially with uh, some of the tensions around our foreign minister right now, uh, who has been blacklisted, blacklisted in Russia in a lot of ways. This is, uh, I, I don't think that this is going to change anything. Um, if anything, it'll maybe sort of strengthen the tensions that have already been building. Mm. Where does this leave Trump? And as you mentioned, his soft spot for Russia, how do they, how does he balance this? That's the question, really, um, because we've seen um, this is a move that was started under the Obama administration, the, the, the move to hold foreign governments uh, to account when they've been spotted doing state-sponsored hacking. So this is something that um, it's already been happening under Obama. It's, this is a sign that it's going to continue. But again, we don't know. Um, at this point, they seem to they have continued in that, regardless of what the White House feels about it. Um, so this is it, it is setting the ground either for a conflict or to show who's going to have more influence here in the end. Uh, this must complicate things for the Trump White House, no? It does, uh, because you've had uh, Trump and the, his advisors and the supporters and the people close to him really sympathizing with Russia. Um, you've had a lot of suspicion growing about their relations with Russia and how much they've turned a blind eye to, especially during the election campaign last year. So now to have your Justice Department and your Homeland Security Department coming out and saying, uh, you know, really affirming that Russia has been doing nefarious things, uh, it's, it, it weakens their case, if anything, that Russia is somebody they can work with. Might be another time for uh, someone to release another page of Donald Trump's tax return. Huh. I think it's going to take more than that. Just to deviate. Look over here, something shiny. Uh, what about uh, getting back to this man, uh, Baratov and, and Ancaster? Would, would the RCMP have had a file on this guy, do you think? You would hope so. Um, if there was somebody who was using Canada as a base for... Um, for this kind of cyber activity. You'd hope the RCMP would know about it. Um, at this point, they've said that their only role in this was locating and arresting the guy. Um, but again, this is another example for Canada if it wants to show the international community that it is playing ball and that it wants to uphold this norm against um, cyber attacks on other states. Um, this is a chance for them to show we did have a guy who was on our territory who was using Canadian resources to, um, you know, Canadian internet connections, Canadian uh, using Canada as mm -hmm. a base for attacking another state. Uh, and we're going to take this seriously and we're going to extradite him and we're going to show that he shouldn't be able to get away with that. Uh, how, do you think this will go through, uh, meaning his extradition without any issue, and that he? When do you think he'll end up in the United States? 
I really can't comment on that. Um, I don't know enough about the way the uh, the justice system would operate here. But like I said, at this point, um, I can't think of a reason why Canada wouldn't want to cooperate with the United States on this. Uh, what happens next? What you know, as we've you know, the last uh, however many days of the Donald Trump presidency, even though this is not related uh, directly to that, it just seems that uh, every day something else happens. Every day, people are wondering what the heck is going on. Where will this go? How will this play out? Well, I am one of those people wondering what the heck is going on. So it's uh, there has been so much unpredictability. It's hard to kind of guess what's going to happen next. Um, like I said, it, what I'm watching for right now is I'm watching to see what comment comes out of uh, the White House about this case in particular. And I'm waiting to see uh, what the next moves are going to be, uh, either from the White House or from the other departments in terms of following up on these cases, um, whether they, they've they released a lot of information already. Um, their indictment was incredibly thorough, so it'll be interesting to see if they release more or if they, um, you know, I have to believe if they're investigating the 2014 Yahoo hacks, which this is related to, they're also going to be looking at the 2013 hacks, so it'll be interesting to see if anything comes out of there. That, um, that's my next question. This the tip of the iceberg? Will we start to see dominoes fall now? That, I think, is the idea. Um, and like I said, we're, we're seeing with the, uh, the DNC hacks follow so clo- and the, the response to it in terms of uh, sanctions against Russia followed so closely by this. Um, it seems to me that they are trying to establish a precedent where this is their, this is their standard operating procedure. This is how they respond. Uh, if they find that somebody has been uh, launching attacks from another state, they're going to take action against that state. So if, I think that's the next thing we're going to have to look for because certainly, I mean, we find about, out about data breaches all the time and there's always, you know, such and such credit card or such and such email account has had a vulnerability exposed. Um, but when we know that there is a foreign state involved, um, that's, that, this, that's, I think, the direction that this is going. And I think this is what the United States is trying to show, that if we do know that there's another state involved, we're going to call it out. So um, I'm going to be watching to see if that's a pattern that holds and if other, if other countries follow this pattern. When you think of the ego that Putin has and the similarities in that respect to Trump, is Russia happy about all of this attention? Uh, are, they, are they filling their lungs with this? Or would they rather just be out of the conversation and be slipping under the radar? Well, like I said, they've so far denied that they had any involvement uh, with this particular case. So I think these are spies. They don't want attention. They want to be able to go about their business quietly. So um, I don't think it's going to be... it's hard to say. I, I don't think that this is going to be something where they're uh, they're pounding their chests and saying that, you know, look at what we're doing to the rest of the world. I think just as long as they're getting results, uh, that's what's going to matter more to them. All right. Joining us, Stephanie McClellan, Research Associate at Center of Governance Innovation and former editor and reporter for various outlets, including the Hamilton Spectator. Stephanie, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.
All right, federal judges have blocked the second Trump travel ban. A judge in Hawaii, one of Maryland, and one in Maryland, have issued a temporary restraining order nationwide before it goes all into effect. Uh, before it did go into effect, the Hawaiian judge uh, concluded that the new order failed to pass legal muster. Trump also admitted at a rally last night that the second order was a watered-down version of the first. Not sure what that accomplishes, but uh, let's bring in Michael Tobe, columnist and a former uh, a former writer, speechwriter for Stephen Harper, and he is with us now. Hello, Michael. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Sure. Uh, before we touch on uh, what's happened with the travel ban, your thoughts on, uh, of course, the breaking news yesterday and the arrest in Ancaster in regard to the Russian hacking on Yahoo. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, actually very interesting. It's unfortunate that there's a Canadian connection, so that's what I think most people mm-hmm. in this country are going to focus on, the fact that there was someone obviously based in Ancaster, which is quite close to where you are, And, no, it's actually very unfortunate overall. I mean, again, this whole issue has been going round and round in circles for months, and there have been obviously plenty of discussions about whether the Russians have hacked into the United States for various things, including the last year's presidential election. I guess what this will obviously show, at least in the beginning, is it'll confirm suspicions of some people that there is a lot of manipulation <clears throat> pardon me, going on in the system and that, you know, that the American government has to be wary of these things. Should, the, should U.S. President Donald Trump really try to build a relationship with Russian, Prime, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin when you sort of consider what's going on here? And would a Trump-Putin connection actually be beneficial to the United States and in turn <laughs> beneficial to North America? But on the other hand, we also have to sort of allow things to kind of proceed as they may. And, you know, they'd say that, you know, the justice is not supposed to be blind. And clearly there is something here. It is worth investigating. It is problematic. And for Canada, unfortunately, we're just going to be sort of wrapped up in the middle of it, too. Uh, Trump, as you mentioned, seems soft, even friendly towards Russia at times. How yep. does the how does he balance this? How how, how will people uh, interpret his relationship with Russia now? Well, you know, he'll balance it as he sees fit. He clearly has an agenda, and his agenda is to build relationships with countries, including countries that are either for their former enemies or that we've just had bad relations with, or that, sorry, that the United States has had bad relations with for many, many years. And his hope is sort of to build an alliance to tackle such things as safety and security of Western nations and others, and also to go after the war on terror and to go after organizations like ISIS and so forth. I get that part of it. And certainly having even just a a, a basic alliance with countries like Russia are certainly beneficial. I'm not doubting that. The problem is Russia itself and Vladimir Putin himself as well. You cannot trust Putin. I mean, Putin has only one agenda, and that is the agenda of Vladimir Putin. Everything is about himself. Ergo, whatever alliances he plans to enter into or opts to enter into, and whatever relationship he has with world leaders like Donald Trump, it has to be to his benefit. Now, some people would say, well, that's great, because that's the way Donald Trump operates, too. Everything that he does is to his benefit as well. But, you know, unfortunately, although there are certainly some small similarities between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump on kind of a political level and maybe even a little bit on a personal level, the two men are fundamentally different in kind of the way they look at the world, look at life. And with issues such as counterintelligence, surveillance and other things, 
I think they actually see things very, very differently. We know, obviously, that most nations do some sort of spying. That's been predetermined for many decades. We're all fundamentally aware of it. And unless you've been hiding your head in the sand for the last, say, 50 to 100 years, Mm -hmm. you know that these sorts of things have been happening on a regular occurrence. But even so, I think it frustrates people, not just Americans, I think it frustrates Canadians as well, to hear these examples coming up when you sort of hope that democratic nations are able to safeguard away from these sorts of occurrences, such as wiretapping, intelligence problems, surveillance issues, etc. You would hope that they're able to kind of balance it off. The problem is that no matter how big a country is and how powerful it is, it is susceptible to a lot of different things. We see with the growth of technology, people are now able to engage in a lot of different things to try to break down a level of government, fight their way into a computer system and hack a system. We know that these things are going on. The Russians, as you know, Scott, happen to be the worst, among the worst in the world when it comes to these sorts of things. So I'm sure a lot of Americans are very furious and frustrated right now, but I doubt even amongst Trump's supporters and detractors, there's going to be a lot of surprise because in the end, it's kind of hard to trust Russia when you sort of consider their history. So does Trump have to come out and say whether Russia is friend or foe, or can he keep riding the fence? I think he can keep riding the fence for now. I think that's basically what he's done for the last little while. I don't think he wants to play his hand quite up front in the sense that I think he wants to see if he can build a relationship with them. He has obviously used a caveat, and you've probably heard this in various speeches and and different uh, releases that he's done, or just in speaking in front of small audiences. He's always said, you know, obviously I, I think it's better that Russia and the United States be friends and not be friends, and I'm just paraphrasing a little bit, but if it doesn't happen, then it won't. So he sort of is sort of shrugging, saying, look, I'm going to do my best, but if it doesn't work out in the end, that's life. What can I do? So I think that's his opt-out for right now, that he's going to try to go as hard as he can and really be gung-ho about building a relationship with Russia, even though a lot of his cabinet ministers around him would probably prefer that he stayed away from this type of strategy. But in the end, if it doesn't work, he can just hold up his hand, shrug, and say, well, I tried, which is better than others. It's not the best strategy to use, but that's probably what he'll say. Does this Yahoo story continue to have legs? Will we continue to find out more about it, or will there be another flavor of the day or tweet tomorrow that distracts us from this? (laughs) There always seems to be another flavor of the day or Mm. tweet tomorrow that distracts us. But I think this uh, this issue will obviously, like most issues that come out in the news today because there's such a saturation of information. My guess is within a few days, most people, they won't necessarily have forgotten about it. There'll be two, three, four other things that have replaced it. But this will linger for a long period of time because the whole issue of Russian hacking has lingered for so long. Mm. And even if it has nothing to do with the presidential election, the fact that the Russians may or may not be trying to intervene in certain aspects of American life and other, you know, in countries around the world, this will obviously give people a lot of pause, and it'll sort of make them say that, you know, even if it's not the most pressing issue of the moment or of the day, it's something that we can't ignore. So I don't think it's ever necessarily going to go away, but we're not going to be probably talking about it strongly in, let's say, the next week or two. Michael Tobe is with us, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper and columnist. Uh, Michael, let's move on to the travel ban. First, uh, let's play a clip from the Attorney General in Washington State. This is Bob Ferguson on the ban. 
bottom line, that is fantastic news. That's exactly what we're seeking, exactly what Matt and the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project is seeking, exactly what the plaintiffs in the case uh, in Maryland are seeking, what all of my colleagues, states like New York, California, Maryland, Massachusetts, Oregon, what we are all seeking. And here is a clip of uh, President Donald Trump at a rally, and this was in response to the travel ban, the second edition of the travel ban being, of course, now questioned and, uh, I guess, put on hold. A judge has just blocked our executive order on travel and refugees coming into our country from certain countries. The order he blocked was a watered-down version of the first order that was also blocked by another judge and should have never been blocked to start with. This new order was tailored to the dictates of the Ninth Circuit's, in my opinion, flawed ruling. All right, uh, Michael Tobe is with us. Michael, where does he go from here? I mean, uh, you know, during the campaign, Donald Trump would always, uh, you know, the mantra was always, it's us against the government, it's us against... Well, now he is the government. So how does he keep playing that same mantra? Because he just creates creating a new us. That's how he does (laughs) it. That's it. That's it. And it's really very... He can do this for 48 years. I mean, people keep Uh, saying that it eventually will end. It doesn't have to end. That's part of the problem. We keep hoping that it will, but it doesn't have to because he can keep playing his cards differently as he sees fit. So now what he's going to do, the us in this case, is the judiciary. So he's going to go after that for a while. But look, behind the scenes, and obviously I have no connections to the Trump White House, but I'm just speculating based on the years that I've worked in politics, they knew behind the scenes that some circuit court was going to block this. I mean, the American Civil Liberties Union and other organizations often go to the most liberal courts that they can possibly find that will have an extremely liberal judge who will oppose whatever is produced for, forward by the Trump White House. Mm-hmm. In this case, they went to Hawaii, and that judge is amongst the most liberal in the United States. It's no surprise that Maryland's court is also sort of frustrated by it, because the same problem exists there. The difference here, Scott, whether you like the second travel ban or not, This one has been at least examined by lawyers, examined by political specialists, and examined by experts. So even if you don't like it, and even if it's not in perfect prose over, you know, from start to finish, it's a much cleaner and more definitive bill than the, uh, sorry, executive order than the previous one was. The first executive order that came out, the, uh, the travel ban, mm-hmm. was just a complete, uh, complete nonsense. It was absolute nonsense. It was badly written, poorly constructed, didn't include things about green cards and others, and then basically threw seven countries into complete turmoil that day. It was a complete and utter mess. This one, whether you like it or dislike it, I would agree with Trump. It's a watered-down version, but it's a more salient version. In other words, it's one that could potentially get through the Congress and so forth, because in the end, ultimately, there's one less country. Iraq has been removed, so now they're down to six. And a lot of the language and examination in there at least sort of fits within the parameters that most moderate conservatives and independents would be pleased with. And the fact that Hawaii has held it up and Maryland might hold it up, too, in the end, I think it'll get through. 
So, uh, timeline. What? How long does this take? How does he come out the other end? Again, as you mentioned, they plan for both outcomes. What are they planning now? That's a good question. I mean, the timeline really is what it is. I mean, you and I and others cannot really predict how long this is going to take. The only thing I can say with some confidence is that whereas the first travel ban could have just stayed in legal limbo for God knows how long, I think this one is more temporary than anything. I think a lot of their experts and the lawyers that are associated with the Trump White House will figure out a strategy to get it out of the Hawaiian court and move it along. And if Maryland decides to hold it up, well, they'll have to go after that, too. It will take a while to go through because, you know, justice isn't blind, but it can be very slow. So there is a process that they have to go through, and there will be probably some more give and take I wouldn't even be surprised if they fix it up a little touch more to make it even more watered down, to use Trump's line, than it currently is, and it will get through one way or the other. It won't make people happy. You know, if you're opposed to the first travel ban, you are more than likely to be opposed to the second travel ban. And if you're iffy about the second travel ban, you know full well that things will be, you know, softened even more, that maybe you'll be more comfortable with it when it it hits its final version. One way or the other, whether people like it or not, Trump is going to get this thing through. The executive order will pass at some point, and it will become law. It's just a question of how long. Could it take several months? It's possible. Could it take a year or two? Absolutely not. I think at some point later this year, maybe shall we say, early to late summer, you will see it through, if not earlier. Doesn't it seem odd, Michael, that everyone is spending so much time working on something that is only temporary? I mean, this is only supposed to last 90 days. What happens after that? I know, and that's, and that's the $64,000 question, if we can use an old TV line, that a lot of people don't know. What does happen on the 91st day? There's been a lot of speculation about it, and your listeners can whip through the Internet and read lots of interesting academic and just basic op-eds that have been written on it. I think the problem is that, and, and this is the thing that I've worried about since day one when this thing was first suggested, it doesn't seem clear to me that the Trump White House has an agenda past the 90th day. In fact, they're just basically doing because they want to sort of plug up the system, start searching, you know, see what's been going on, look at the to and fro in terms of the immigration process, try to determine which countries are bringing in which type of people, etc. I mean, the language that they use and the, the rhetoric is just awful, but unfortunately that's what's really involved here. But my hope is that at that 91st day that they either, A, don't renew it, which I'm, I don't think they're planning to do, but B, if they don't really have a firm strategy in place, or at least some sort of a working strategy, it's going to be an utter mess, because many people will come back and thrust their hands up in the air and say, well, why did you hold me up for three months if you don't have a plan of action? All you did was you temporarily looked at things, and then everything goes back to normal. My guess is that things will obviously will not go back to normal, but what the 91st day shows is beyond me. I think the Trump White House is hoping for improvements in the system, that you will get a better type of immigration process, that more people will come to the United States who have the clear you know, classifications, education, background, um, work experience, etc., that you sort of have come to hope and expect that Americans would have. But under the whole theory, you know, the melting pot theory that the United States exists in, 
the hope has always been that people who do come to the United States actually want to be there. They want to participate in the system. They want to be a part of the United States. When you have things like a travel ban, quote-unquote, in place, that won't obviously encourage a lot of people, A, to come to the U.S., and B, when they do come, to, be, to become assimilated into society, because they'll always sort of have the feeling in the back of their minds that, at least in terms of the man who's currently in charge of the White House, he's got an issue with me. And hmm. that's not the best starting point you want for a person who's just newly arrived to the United States of America. Do you think they are trying to, quote, figure out what's going on? It seems we're spending more time working on a travel ban that's temporary for 90 days than we are the actual solution, which was the whole reason we got here. Yes. Well, look, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> that line has been part of Trump's rhetoric since the campaign. We know that. And are they trying to figure things out? Probably in a small way they are. I think we have to at least give them that much, because if the whole point of this was just to, you know, increase the ire of American citizens, well, you know what, they've already accomplished it. They accomplished it in the first travel ban. I think they are probably in their own ways trying to look at the process and see if there are ways to improve it. And certainly, if you restrict it from several countries where there have been a lot of red flags and a certain amount of historical problems, yes, that might actually be able to show some sort of an impact. But on the other hand, there's a lot of countries, including Saudi Arabia, who are not part of this travel ban. We know why the Saudis are not there, because of their economic and political ties to the United States. But if you have countries that have had either a problem with terrorism or terrorist activity that are not part of this travel ban, then what is this small segment? What, is these, what are these six countries really proving? You need to basically have an all-or-nothing approach, which means that if there are, let's say, 25 to 30 countries that have issues with terrorism, then put them all under the ban and see what happens. Or if this is not the right way to handle things, and maybe there's a better way to increase vetting and improve vetting within the immigration process, Maybe the travel ban was never a good move to begin with. Either way, I think they have a strategy in mind to look at things. I just don't think they have the solution. But then again, to be fair, I don't care which president is in the office, be it someone who's left-leaning or right-leaning, I don't think anyone has the answer right now. Michael Tobe is with us, columnist and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right. Uh, you've certainly heard the story of Amanda Todd, and uh, the man accused of cyberbullying Amanda Todd has been sentenced to 10 years and 8 months in a high-profile but unrelated case in the Netherlands. The sentence is a correlation to the the abuse of 34 young girls, uh, five men. Uh, he still faces charges in the Todd case. Uh, just a, a piece of, of what we've uh, heard from uh, the CBC. The Dutch man accused of bullying Port Coquitlam, B.C. teen Amanda Todd, sentenced, as I just mentioned. Uh, uh, the man, 38 years of age, was given the sentence uh, in Amsterdam on Thursday morning on charges related uh, to the abuse of uh, 34 young girls and five men. Uh, the summary of court also shows that Coban was also accused of blackmail, uh, co-perpetration of rape, attempted rape, seduction charges, as well as several other child pornography-related offenses. According to the Dutch Prosecution Office, the victims in countries such as the Netherlands, uh, Australia, Norway, the UK, and the United States, uh, he is facing five separate charges in Canada in relation to Amanda Todd, 
including possession of child pornography and extortion, and he is set to be extradited after the proceedings in the Netherlands, although he has filed a legal appeal appeal to stay in his home country. To talk more about all of this, Carol Todd is with us, mother of Amanda Todd, and she is on the line now. Hello, Carol. How are you today? I am doing as best as possible today. I can just imagine what and I and I can only imagine. Every time I see a picture of your daughter, it just breaks my heart. And um mm-hmm. it uh you know, it, it makes me realize how courageous uh you are in your advocacy for these causes and and how much you've done to 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 keep this in the forefront and to and to keep pursuing the cause. How does this help you uh with this sentencing in the Netherlands? Um, it, it brings satisfaction that um, the judges in the Netherlands looked at the evidence and the testimonies and felt that he was guilty and gave him the, you know, the maximum sentence that was asked for. When I was in the Netherlands, um, I listened to the prosecution and they asked for the maximum, but they said they would certainly have asked for more if that was possible. So um, I can only be pleased by the outcome because this guilty verdict is much better than a, you know, a, a non-guilty verdict. Were you, so, were you strictly mm-hmm. a visitor and an observer of this case? You weren't involved? I wasn't involved. I was just strictly a, a visitor. I felt that for years, for a few years back, um, every time I was asked, I was adamant that I didn't need to go over there. I didn't want to go over there. And as it approached closer, I felt that there was, um, I guess, an, an inner need for me to, to go over there just to be able to see him, to to get a sense of, you know, the trial and and him as a an individual. And I was able to um, get all that from being in the Netherlands and, and sitting in the trial for three of the court dates. What was it like coming home? How were you feeling coming home? I was, uh, for the last few weeks, I've been anxious about the, the pending verdict, right? Because the defense team stated their arguments on every charge and, um, <clears throat> you know, he should be acquitted. He's not guilty of this. So, you know, you, you worry about circumstantial evidence and, you know, he's innocent until proven guilty. So um, big knots in my stomach and and even last night coming into this morning. And But when I was and when I woke up and and started seeing the tweets and um, getting some you know real-time reports from journalists that were sitting in the courtroom and then and then came about where he was found guilty of you know the the charges and got the maximum penalty that made me really it was it was a good moment did he know you were there does he know who you are <laughs> oh I'm sure he knows who I am mm-hmm. um, and, and he did know I was there because I was in the courtroom on the first day that I was present at the trial, and he was 15 feet away when he entered the courtroom. So um, mm. he knew I was there. What's that like? <laughs> it was it was different. It was, um, you know, I actually got scared for a moment, just what I would go through, and and as hard as it was, it was very satisfying to be able to see him, to have him know that I w- was there, and I was there standing up for all those other victims and their families, and my daughter, and I, I 
wanted to show him that I was not afraid to face him. Mm. To Like, I didn't get to see him eyeball to eyeball, but um, I wanted him to know that our presence was there, and I'm sure it was felt there, right? Because the other victims were all were all minors, and um, privacy is was a factor. So they they weren't um, just like our court system here in Canada, right? No mm-hmm. minors are are named. Yeah. Um, and so because Amanda's not with us anymore, I, we're able to talk about Amanda. We're able to say her name. And we're able to share what we know. And she left it all out for us mm-hmm. in that video, yeah, right? So yeah. that was her own, it was, although it wasn't Amanda's case, that was her, her testimony. And, and so it, it made me feel good that even though my daughter's not here, she is still standing up for herself every time someone watches that video. That is so true. Um, did you want to lash out? Did you want to say something? To him? Yeah. Um. Someone asked me that a while ago, if I, if I was, how much anger did I have? Yeah. And, and it's not so much anger, it's more pity and sadness. I, I really feel sad that he is that kind of person that feels, takes pleasure into making other people's lives traumatic. And, and uh, he's made them, he's traumatized them, he's victimized them, and it's all for his his guilty pleasure and that's really sad that there are people in the world that behave this way and and want to do that and um not only were there adults involved that he victimized i mean these are young children mm-hmm. innocent children vulnerable children right who got scared who didn't know what they they could do and even last night on my on my social media there was still someone had posted um, something about you know the trial coming up this morning and the verdict and and someone wrote well she she you know she lifted her top and she showed herself she take she has to take blame for that and and so I was reading it going wow there's people really still thinking that way yeah. and we've all made mistakes in the world and if every single person sat down and thought of something that they did um, that that was wrong, but they, one, never told anybody, or two, they regret, we've all done it. So we can't keep persecuting. We need to move forward and mm. and educate. Any, did, did you get any insight into why he does this? I mean, I guess we don't have to explain that, but, you know, but, but, but you know, uh, why? Well, you can only talk, you know, in a, in a psychological perspective. Yeah. Here. And they did bring up some of his history and his past, his family situations, and everyone's got a story, right? There's, yeah. there's people who, who unfortunately sexually abuse children, and we hear of stories where they were victims themselves when they were younger, or, you know, something's happened and they don't have relationships, they don't understand, you know, that compassion part of the world. Um, when you think of how we're all born, we're all born kind of neutral. Mm-hmm. And and then things happen in our lives that create our personalities, and so it's unfortunate. I don't know the you know the specific reasons of of why he's doing that. And he won't definitely will never share it with us. But something obviously has has gone um, sideways that uh, makes him be this kind of person. Obviously, the whole reason for this case in the Netherlands: thirty four young girls, five men. Um, there were obviously others other than uh, your daughter Amanda involved in this. Does that how does that help? 
But she wasn't well, the she wasn't the only one. Does that help at all? I think that if Amanda had realized that she was not the only one, she might still be here in this world. Yeah. Um, because you you feel like in her video, and and even you know you talk to other victims that have gone through similar things, and they feel like they've been abandoned. They're the only one in the world that in 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 their world that has ever felt this way. But um, there are definitely others, and if if she didn't feel if she had felt she realized that she if we had known mm-hmm. that she wasn't the only one it it would have given her some sense that you know he just didn't target her and and there were others feeling this way it would have it would have empowered her just the same way that you know this this whole situation has empowered me to make sure that we continue to use our voices to um keep our families and our kids safer you were talking about how uh, the 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 accused here, the guilty, uh, uh, knew that you were in the courtroom. What about the families of these other victims? Did you talk to them at all? Did they did they know you were there? No, I didn't talk to them at all. Um, I did get a sense that um, through other sources that these these young people are still traumatized over yeah. the whole thing and and you think about and I thought about it too if Amanda was alive would we have gone as far as the trial mm. because I know I know of you know a, a, another victim that decided not to pursue um, the trial only because she needed to move on move forward with with her life and it would be too traumatic so um, you know different different reasons for different things and um, this this whole thing has definitely, um, seeing him has made me stronger um, in that we need to, um, I don't know if fight's the right word, but um, ban- that get <laughs> moved together to, to change how um, people behave in this world because, or we need to strengthen those that are vulnerable also right? And not give the empowerment to those who victimize others, because um, we need to do something to create that, that tone. It, it'll take forever. <laughs> it Can you see the end. changing tides, though, Carol? Can you see things changing? I do see changing tides, because, you know, four and a half, five years ago, we weren't talking about this as much. It's just like mental health, right? We weren't, we weren't having that discussion. We weren't seeing commercials and ads on, on TV or YouTube or, or wherever telling kids to be safer online, don't share pictures, watch who you talk to. Um, and, and it's not only kids, it's kids, it's, it's young adults, it's older adults, it's seniors, right? Online safety and, and cyberbullying, bullying, predators, sexting, we're all talking about it more and more, and and law enforcement is, you know, learning and becoming more involved and looking at the files more deeply, and there's, I think there's there's also better awareness and and, and better resources now than there were six years ago, seven years ago, when Amanda's image first came out, and so that's that's all we we can hope for now, is that we keep progressing and um, not fall back on you know, that kids can be kids or, you know, and, and victim blaming that person shouldn't have done that. And, and that's so wrong because it doesn't, that doesn't help. 
What are the chances of this person uh, coming here and answering the charges uh, with regard to Amanda? Do you, do you hold your breath there? Do you, is that, do you think that will happen, or do you think that he will not be extra, extradited? Well, it's already gone through two levels, right? The, the Department of Justice has signed off from Canada a couple mm-hmm. years ago. Last June, the lower courts in the Netherlands signed off on it, and now we're just waiting for the Supreme Court of the Netherlands to um, make their decisions, and that's coming, I, I believe, April 4th. Um, and so after that, we'll find out what happens. But I also understand that his defense team may may apply for an appeal for today's court decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have also, you know, found out that either way, there will be a trial against Aiden Coban versus Amanda Todd somewhere in this world. Um. Is it still important for that to happen? Is it still is that still a chapter that needs to be closed? Or the fact that you were there and saw him in the Netherlands is that enough? No, there needs to be Aiden Coban versus Amanda Todd. Mm-hmm. Um, <coughs> we waited this long, and, and and not only excuse me, <coughs> not only for me, but Amanda's video has been viewed 50 million times around the world. And there's, mm-hmm. there's young people, there's older people. It's caused lots of conversation, and lots of people have attached themselves to um, either Amanda's memory or her story. And so it's not only another circle of satisfaction for myself as Amanda's mom, but also there's lots of people out there in the world who are waiting for um, this an ending for this part of of the past, right? Yeah. So um, I'm hoping that not only for myself, but for others, that we can, this will happen. And you know what, it will happen somewhere, because if he's not coming to Canada, uh, I guess I'm going back to the Netherlands. Um, d- does this come to an end, Carol, or will your advocacy continue as long as you're on the planet? The advocacy will continue on the planet as long as people continue to want to um, listen to myself, Amanda's story. There are lots of people in this world that continue to, to talk about online safety and behaviors and, and everything, right? And, and they are professionals and they are people that have experience doing this also. Um, so it's always been a, a wait and see. I thought that after the first year... Amanda would be forgotten and we would just, you know, go on with our lives. But it seems like every year um, her story takes hold in a different way and and continues to, to go. And Amanda created that video on her own. Um, and it's timeless because someone just asked me last week, so how old would she be now? And mm. Amanda would be 20. And she made that video when she was 15, but you would never know that. Um, there was nothing in it that would say it was time-stamped, you know, 2012. Yeah. Um, and, and the way she did it, and she told her story. So that that video is now being used in, in school divisions across the world for educational reasons. Does so, it make you feel like she'll live forever? I think she will live forever. It, it, it almost as if she is, Carol. It, it, it's, it's created her legacy. Yeah. And so, you know, when we call, we call the, 
the what what we've created and we call it Amanda's legacy it is truly a legacy um and, and she was brave enough to to put herself out there making a video like that and it's up to us to keep it going because she wanted it out there for a reason and that was to tell people to stand up and be strong right and be stronger and so we owe it to her to do this because she has created this worldwide effect to um, help to make sure others are safe. People her age don't don't fall into that that trap of you know being bullied and not telling anybody and, and being victimized. And she just wanted she just wanted the world to be peaceful. What about you, Carol? How do you do this every day? When I, well, I package it up, I have a great therapist. Um, I have a supportive network of people. And that's something that I tell, you know, everyone out there is create that support network because um, by telling and talking and, and, and listening, um, it, it definitely helps. Um, when, I, when I need some time, I, I put everything away and um, I, I stop. I don't travel. I, I just stay home and sort of watch Netflix to get myself into a, a, hmm. a different mode. And um, it's learning how to, I guess it's learning how to facilitate and, and just decompress in a different way, right? I try not to, um, I mean, not a day goes by where I don't think about Amanda. Um, and I think of her multiple times a day. Um, but... But there's times when I have to realize also that um, we're doing this for a reason, and it's a good reason. Carol Todd has been with us, uh, mother of Amanda Todd and the man accused of cyberbullying uh, Amanda and others. 34 young girls, five men in the Netherlands, has been sentenced to 10 years and eight months on those unrelated trials. And of course, uh, Carol hoping one day to have the same justice for Amanda. Carol, again, uh, we've talked several times, but thank you once again for sharing your story. You never cease to amaze me of the the courage that you uh, uphold and uh, the spirit you have for Amanda's memory and advocating for others. Uh, on her behalf. Carol, uh, good luck. Congratulations again. All right. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.